0: You know we're interested but we have questions we're eager to know more can we see him what would he require of us if we were begin to follow him that's the idea behind the request found in john 12 verse 21 when this group of foreigners finds jesus's disciples and they say we want to see jesus we're interested but we've got some questions we're eager to know him can we see him what would it require of us if we want to begin to follow him? It's a request from this group of outsiders in every way. It's also a signal that Jesus' hour had finally come. What had required years of preparation and anticipation was here. And so with emotional intensity, Jesus describes what his hour is and the crossroads that it brings everyone to. And then he ends with an appeal that leaves every heart racing. And all of this is his answer to their request to see Jesus, and it's his answer to ours as well. Let's look at it together in John 12, beginning in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, foreigners. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard, it said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. as the Father has told me. Let's pray. Spirit of God, we invite you to have your way in our hearts. Turn the lights on. Help us to see. Soften our hearts. Help us to receive. Put your finger on areas of our life that need to change. Deepen, deepen our affection for Jesus. Stir up, Lord, our lives where we're stagnant and indifferent. We trust you, Lord, to do all these things and more. Amen. Three things, church, will help us walk through this text. One, Jesus hour and the crossroads it brings us to. Two, unbelief and its painful consequences. And three, Jesus' final appeal. So first, Jesus' hour and the crossroads it brings us to. In John 12, verse 19, the Pharisees had said, this is getting out of control. They had witnessed Jesus come into Jerusalem on a donkey. They had witnessed so many people, the crowds, the masses, uh, waving palm branches and, and shouting, Hosanna. And they said, look, the whole world is, is coming after Jesus. The whole world is going after him. And they said this, again, after seeing the response of the crowds hailing Jesus as king as he entered Jerusalem. And so, is the whole world going after Jesus? And then John immediately mentions in verse 20 and 21 that a group of Greeks, a group of non-Jews, of Gentiles, from the Greek-speaking world approach Philip with a request to see Jesus. They were in Jerusalem, to celebrate the the Feast of Passover, like everyone else in that crowd. They were known as God-fearers. In other words, they're attracted to Judaism, but not officially converts. They admire and respect the traditions and the worship of, of Judaism. And here's what they say. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip goes to Andrew. Philip and Andrew go to Jesus. And Jesus responds with, yes, of course, show them in. Show them my way. He doesn't say that, actually. No, he says, it's time. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay? Th- throughout Jesus' public ministry, we've heard him say things like, my hour has not yet come, right? Or John The author of the book of John would explain why Jesus wasn't arrested saying, oh, his hour had not yet come. But here Jesus is saying, okay, it's time. The hour has come. If you've ever prepared for a wedding or maybe like a a trip of a lifetime, you know that it requires months of preparation. It involves years of anticipation, right? And when the day finally arrives, it can feel a bit like a dream. Jesus is saying the day has arrived. The hour has come. For what? For the Son of Man, which is a term that Jesus often used when referring to himself that was loaded with messianic expectations rooted in the prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, of this one who would come like a son of man who would be given all authority and who the nations would come to who would have a kingdom that wouldn't end. Jesus is referring to himself as this son of man. And it's time for the son of man to be glorified. What does glorified mean? To be exalted, to be honored and magnified. How will this glorification happen? And why is Jesus uh, ignoring, seemingly, their request to see him? And if he's not ignoring their request, why is he answering their request this way? Don't imagine Jesus talking softly to Philip and Andrew, kind of off to the side, whispering, my hour has come. Don't imagine it that way. He's he's just entered Jerusalem on a donkey. The crowds were pushing in and around him. Imagine a large crowd gathered around him. Maybe the Greeks, maybe these foreigners, found their way through and heard what Jesus was saying, that his hour had come. And as, as Jesus declares this, Verse 24, he says, truly, truly. Now, wherever we've seen this before, I've encouraged us to interpret it this way. Pay attention now. Listen with everything inside of you. Truly, truly. And then what does he say? I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This group of foreigners just asked to see Jesus, and it was a signal to Jesus that his hour had come. And then he launches into this teaching about a grain of wheat being planted into the ground. A grain of wheat, he says, must enter the ground and die. When a grain of wheat enters the ground, it sheds its outer shell. It becomes something that it was not it dies to its old form, to its old self. When that seed dies, it bursts into something new, no longer alone, no longer a single seed, but something extraordinary, something that produces fruit. It looks very different, but that small and unimpressive grain of wheat, if it remains outside of the ground, if it's not planted, it will stay in its form but if it's planted, it will become something else altogether. Why is Jesus giving this illustration? Jesus is describing what he is about to do for the world. And he's also describing what is necessary to become one of his followers. A profound illustration. He goes on, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know, Jesus would often use hyperbole in, in the stark contrast when describing what it means to follow him, what's required. He does it here. He's done it so many times before in his teachings. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world We'll keep it for eternal life. And we, we read this, we might, be, we might be like, whoa, time out. Wait a minute. What's going on here? Did Jesus just tell me to hate myself? I thought Jesus was all about love. Hate? It means to love less. This is a commitment that far exceeds devotion to anyone and everyone else. A commitment that far exceeds devotion to anyone and everyone else, even self. Jesus is addressing the kind of devotion that is required in order to follow him, the kind of allegiance and and faithfulness. And doesn't it push against what our culture preaches? If the foreigners, if those Greeks could hear what Jesus was saying that day, and I think they could, they were coming out of a worldview We're actually swimming in a worldview that that believed that the goal of human life was bound up in self fulfillment and personal maturity. Does that sound familiar? Things really haven't changed. Self fulfillment, personal maturity. We all have loyalties, church, people in things that we're committed to and we should be committed to. But we also have things that fight for our attention, our greatest attention, our greatest loyalty. And so Jesus is saying loyalty to him must not only take precedence, it needs to redefine every loyalty that we have, every other loyalty that we have. And so a reorientation is being called for, a refashioning of our lives. Jesus is interested in where our greatest allegiance rests. It puts every other loyalty, every other love of ours in a new category. Jesus above family, Jesus above Self. Now you hear this, you think, man, is, uh, Jesus, does Jesus have a big ego here? I don't know, maybe you, maybe you think that, maybe not, but Jesus isn't being egotistical here. Jesus knows that meaning and hope and rest and joy and life is found in him. He knows what we need. He knows who he is, and he's calling us to an allegiance to him that at the end of the day is for our good. So what, what do we do? What do we do if we examine our own lives and we realize, we come to the conclusion that Jesus isn't in that central place that he should be? Well, let me suggest that we begin with repentance, with owning up to it. To repent is simply to turn away to to acknowledge that there's something wrong, that we've sinned against God in a particular way and then decide in that moment, I'm gonna turn away from that. I'm gonna turn away from this way of life and look to you for the grace to live differently. Repentance is a lifestyle for Christians. Look, I, I fail all the time. I sin a lot. Just ask my family. And so, but I also know the grace of God that's there for me to empower and strengthen me in my weakness. And so I repent. Lord, forgive me. Give me the grace to run. Give me the grace to live. Give me the grace to respond differently. Help me, Lord, to move forward with humility in this area of my life. It, that's a common prayer. And so here, if you're, if, you're, if you're seeing that Jesus isn't central, if you've not been given him, giving him uh, your attention and allegiance the way he's calling you to, what do you do? You can repent. Jesus, forgive me, help me. Now, give, give me the want and the desire to follow you this way. The solution isn't just to try harder to love Jesus. That's not the solution. The solution is to tell him that you want to love him more than anything and anyone else. Tell him that. I want to love you more than anything and anyone else. I don't want you to be second place. I want you to be first place. I want you to be the center of my life. I want to love everything else less when it comes to loving you. Tell him that and then move forward knowing that he's heard you and knowing that he empowers you to do it. He goes on to say in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. So to be a disciple requires personal attachment to your teacher, to learn from his words and example, to imitate him. That's what following includes. It's a decision to walk with Jesus in life, to obey him. It begins with with faith and repentance, really two sides of the same coin, and expressed trust in who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So following Jesus isn't about just selecting things that you like best about Jesus and then ignoring the area's that you like least. Following Jesus isn't about simply selecting the areas that you like best and ignoring the areas that you like least. The result of following Jesus is that you will, the Father will honor you. That's what Jesus says. The Father will honor you. If anyone serves me, he says, The Father will honor him. Wow. And then verse 27 is this window into Jesus' prayer life, into his personal struggles, into his emotional and and personal makeup. Uh, look, Look with me in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, he says. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Now is my soul troubled. Jesus is deeply troubled. He's in turmoil and unrest at the thought of his hour. Is this allowed? Are you surprised to see Jesus deeply troubled, troubled in spirit? Jesus was deeply troubled by the thought of what he was about to endure. This isn't the only place in Scripture that we see this. We see the wrestling match that's going on in the garden uh, the night he's betrayed. He's crying out these great tears to the Father. He knows what he's about to endure, and it's just not the physical, excruciating pain that will come through crucifixion. I believe there's the understanding that when he literally becomes sin for us, he bears the darkness of sin and shame. And the Father, God, the Father, pouring out the just punishment on our sin that rests on Jesus. I mean, the the thought of that, it deeply troubled Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus wasn't doing. He wasn't second-guessing his mission. He wasn't about to tap out. His deeply troubled soul, though, for us, is permission to feel and to be troubled when facing difficult things. It's okay to be troubled. It's okay to wrestle with what's coming our way. God, God can handle it. Actually, God is the place to bring our trouble. And Jesus is doing this with the Father. But look at the resolve. Yes, he's troubled, but look at his resolve. Oh, we're learning Jesus here today. Verse 27 and 28, look, look what he says. What am I going to do? Request to be saved from this hour? No, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's his response. Such resolve, such obedience, such commitment to the Father's will. Jesus knew this was the very purpose of the hour and he says father glorify your name and so this is the place where Jesus will find strength and power to put his shoulder down and press on and press through with his longing for the father to be glorified and the father audibly answers back oh it's profound there's only two other places where the Father answers back audibly. We see it in Jesus' baptism and then this moment called the transfiguration where his, he, he, he glows brighter than the sun, whiter than any white, and, and he's, he's, he's showing his glory in a unique way. But here the Father speaks audibly. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus is longing. Father, glorify your name. That's my desire in the midst of this, this uh in the midst of what's ahead of me, in the midst of this hour, glorify your name. You see, Jesus is fully man, fully God. And so he wrestles just like you and I. And, and, and the father responds, It's beautiful, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. I have glorified it? Yes, through the incarnation, the word become flesh through Jesus, the son of man, son of God, taking on skin and bones and stepping into space and time the Father is glorified in it. Through his ministry of healing the sick, of raising the dead, of forgiving sinners, the Father is glorified. But he will be glorified. How? Through Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation. And people are standing around saying, hey, was that thunder? I think I heard thunder. Was that an angel? And Jesus says in verse 30, that voice was for you. And then with such certainty and resolve, now, he says in verse 31, now is judgment. Now is the ruler, the prince of this world going to be cast out. That dark ruler, the Satan, the prince of this world. He is going to be cast out. Wait, 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 wait. When? When? When I am lifted up from the earth, Jesus says. When I am lifted up from the earth. Jesus in saying this is describing his crucifixion, lifted up, to be hoisted up onto a cross. Jesus is describing his hour. Remember, Jesus is responding to a group of foreigners who came and said, we wanna see you. And it was a signal to him, now that this group of foreigners, not Jews, but Gentiles, the nations are coming to me. Now, let me tell you, my hour is here. And what's my hour? That's what he's been describing. I must be planted like a, like a seed. I must be lifted up from the earth. When that happens, he says, I will draw all people to myself, the nations. This isn't universalism. This isn't at the end of um, the day, all will be with Christ in heaven. This is all kinds, all people. Unless... A grain of wheat dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it, become, it bears fruit. And then in verse 34, the people listening, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. The Christ, the anointed, we read in Scripture, in the law, look, we read that he lives forever, and, and they were probably reading the prophecy given to King David who said he would always have an heir on the throne. This is the Messiah. This is the king that's going to come. He will reign forever. What are you talking about? The Messiah, the anointed one, will have a reign that has no end. Who is this Christ? Who exactly is this Son of Man that you speak of, Jesus? How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up, must be crucified? We know what that means. That's unthinkable. The Messiah isn't going to be a victim. He's going to lead us into triumph over our enemies. That's what they're saying. And then Jesus responds, I'm only here for a little longer. Walk, live in the light that you might become, believe that you might become sons of light, followers, true disciples. Everyone who learns of Jesus' hour, everyone who hears of Jesus' hour must come to terms with what Jesus is describing here. Everyone. We must come to terms with this. He brings us to a crossroads. Number two, unbelief and its painful consequences. After saying all of this, he, he hides himself for a little while from the crowds, just for a bit. And then John makes some comments. Even after all the signs and the miracles and the evidence and the teachings of Jesus, John says they still did not believe in him. This is stubborn rejection. This is callousness. This is unbelief and an unwillingness to see Jesus for who he is and to follow him. And it is the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah, the prophet, he had a ministry to Israel 700 years before Jesus was born. So Israel was living in Isaiah's day in blatant immorality and rebellion, idolatry. And so Isaiah's message was, was met with just this unwillingness to listen. And then John quotes a couple passages from the prophet Isaiah. In verse 38, John quotes Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is rooted in Isaiah 53. This is rooted in the ministry of what Isaiah, who Isaiah calls the suffering servant of the Lord, this one who will come through whom salvation and rescue would come to the world, but he's known as this suffering servant. You can read about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And then, In verses 39 through 40, John quotes Isaiah 6. And in its context is the vision of God as the exalted king seated on his throne whose robe, if you read this vision, fills the temple in which he is seated. It's symbolic of his authority and power. And Isaiah, as he sees this vision, he is shook up, he is undone. And he says, woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people who are unclean. I'm undone. He thought he was a goner. And God provides pardon and atonement for Isaiah. This crazy imagery of an angel taking a coal out of the flames and touching Isaiah's lips with it so that he would then be cleansed. And then God says to him, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? Who will carry this message? And Isaiah says, send me. And God is saying in Isaiah 6, your words won't be accepted, Isaiah. It was a hard ministry that Isaiah had. Isaiah's ministry was met with stubborn rejection and it led ultimately to the nation's judgment and exile. And so the people of Isaiah's day became like the idols they served, mute, deaf, blind. The people became like the idols that they served. The ministry of Jesus then is compared with that. And so we, we, we read this and we're like, oh man, has darkness won? Is darkness winning here? It's not. John 1, verse 4 and 5, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In John, verse 41, he says this, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw Jesus' glory. Who did? Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Jesus. What John is helping us to do is, is draw lines, connect the dots from Isaiah's ministry and to Jesus' life. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the king of glory. Jesus is the His rejection is now a warning. It's a warning against unwillingness to repent. It's a warning uh, to consider uh, the evidence before you. It's, It's a warning against the dismissal of facts. It's a warning against the desire to get those facts out of the way and to ignore them. It's a warning that we too can fall prey and become like the idols we serve. It's a warning, but it's also fulfillment. The rejection of Jesus here in Jesus' day is fulfillment. There's a bigger purpose at work here. The stubborn rejection of Jesus would lead Jesus to a cross. He would be lifted up, and that would be the means through which rescue would come to the nations, to all. And so we see God's sovereignty. We see human responsibility here. Let me tell you what this isn't when you read this passage. This isn't cold, impersonal fatalism. No one is being given over to something they don't want. If you refuse to believe, you will experience judgment. Unbelief has incredibly painful consequences attached to it. It's terrifying. Verse 42 goes on to say, Nevertheless, many of the religious authorities believed in Jesus but they were not willing to go public with it. They were afraid to confess it. This all leads to the final point, number three, Jesus' final appeal, this final public appeal. It's loaded with urgency. With great passion, Jesus cried out. He, He exclaimed, he He lifted his voice really loud. He shouted that, look, if if someone cries out, if someone cries out to you in love and with urgency, you would pay attention, right? Yes, we would all pay attention. And here's what he says. Whoever believes in me, whoever, whoever believes in me, and and this after what John just said about, about the dangers of unbelief, the warnings and the fulfillment that happened there. But he, Jesus goes on to say, whoever believes in me, believes in him who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I know who I am is what he's saying. Do you know who I am? And When you believe in me, when you see me, you're seeing the Father. Huge claims here. Huge claims. And we read this and we're like, oh, did he just say that? Did he really just say that? We've heard him say it before. It's not the first time. And in a way, this is, look, this is Jesus' final public appeal before he just now meets with his his inner uh, group of disciples. This is it. What does he say? It's a summary of his ministry and of his message up to this point. He's making some huge claims about himself. And then in verse 46, look what he says. I have come into the world as light. So whoever, whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He's saying, here's why I've come. And it becomes so clear after we read this. What he's doing in his final appeal is presenting once again and for one last time this open invitation. It's one final plea to those listening that day and to us today. Jesus is staring darkness Jesus is is staring death in the face. And as he moves towards it with boldness and resolve, as he moves towards it for our good and for the Father's glory, he knows he's going to lay down his life. And here's why he does it. For the Greeks who came to him that day and said, I want to see you. Here's why he does it. For the people of St. Pete who come to him this day And say, we want to see you. Jesus' final public appeal, it's filled with urgency and passion. It's fueled by love and desire. It leaves every heart racing. I mean, church, the stakes couldn't be higher. The costs couldn't be greater. The love couldn't be deeper. The hope couldn't be truer. The invitation extended isn't for someone else. It's for you. Don't think this invitation is for someone else. It's for you. How are you responding to Jesus' appeal? It's not a one-time response either. It's a life response. It's a whole life response. You come and you say, hey, can we see Jesus? I've got questions. What does it really mean to follow him? What will it require of me to follow him? And Jesus has been answering that. Are you ready to burst forth into something new? You'll need to be planted first. You'll need to die first to self. All of this is Jesus' answer to their request to see him. It's his answer to our request as well. You know, maybe you've been here at Local for some time, for years, and you've heard Sunday after Sunday about Jesus. The good news about Jesus can become, well, we can get used to it. it. Our hearts don't race like they once did It can happen. Or, I'm well aware that like what was happening in Isaiah's day, our ears can be closed. Our eyes can be shut to the truth of Jesus. But I know that the Spirit of God is able to break through any hardness of heart and any deaf ear. There is no boundary too great. Jesus was lifted up so that you might come to him. Have you? And so I, I, it wouldn't be right for us to, to end today without me giving an, an invitation. Jesus is giving an invitation. This is like his last word, his last public appeal. And he's, he's saying, Whoever believes in me, I've come for this reason a light in the darkness. Are you going to respond to Jesus' invitation? Have you? with genuine faith and repentance. Are you ready to be a disciple, a follower of him? And if that's you, we're gonna have the front open. Pastors will be in the front. I'll be down here. I wanna pray with you. Let me encourage you, do not leave this place without responding to Jesus' invitation. Tomorrow's not guaranteed to you. For those of us who have put our faith and our hope in Jesus, would you join me in praying for renewal? For a fire to be lit in our hearts for what Jesus is proclaiming? That it would make our hearts race in a good way. That we'd see that now we get to hold high the beauty of who he is. And that we would take ownership of what it means to live as sons of light, to walk in the light. And finally, that we would be filled with gratitude and joy that the Son of Man was lifted up for me that it would feel oh so personal because it is oh so personal. Let me pray. Jesus, we're humbled by the reality of of who you are, what you've done. We're moved. We've come to a crossroads as we consider your hour. Lord, we pray, I pray for every man, woman, and child within the sound of my voice who has not put their faith in you that they would do it today, even in this moment. That they would live planted. That they would be willing to give up what they cannot keep to gain something that is only found in you. Lord, that they would find hope and joy and meaning and life in you today. And for those of us who are yours, who are sons and daughters of light, who have put our faith in you, that you would bring renewal, that you would bring a a revival in our hearts, that you would stir us with gratitude and joy, that we'd want to live as sons and daughters of light, that we'd learn to walk in the light, that we'd be humbled by your mercy and grace, that we'd forever, for the rest of our life, remember that you were lifted up so that we could see you. Amen.